welcome to Nonprofit Lowdown. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. Hey folks, it's Rhea Wong with you with Nonprofit Lowdown once again. I am so excited because today my guest is Rich Rory, and we're going to be talking about lessons in leadership. So I feel Rich needs no introduction, but for those of you who don't know him, he is soon to be CEO and former president of Achievement First. He is a distinguished visiting professor at NYU. He was Chief of Policy and Public Affairs at the Kip Foundation. Perhaps he is best known for being the Deputy Mayor of New York and overseeing Universal Pre-K for All. He's also been President and CEO of Children's Aid Society. I feel I need a breath. There's so much here. Executive Director and Co-Founder of Groundwork, Executive Director and Co-Founder of iMentor, and Yale Law School and Harvard graduate. It's good to know that you are an underachiever, Mr. Rory. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Ray. I appreciate it. Please feel free to keep going. It's, it's nice. To- <laughs> <laughs> I'll send you the PR bill in the mail. That's right. But Rich, tell us a little bit about yourself that is not on your CV. Who is the man? And tell us a little bit about the path that has brought you to this moment. Sure, Rhea. No, seriously, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it and seeing lots of friends and former colleagues on this group. So it's really a pleasure to be here. So who am I? Not on my resume. Probably the most important thing about me that's not on my resume is that I am a dad of two incredible kids, two teenage boys, and I am the husband of someone who is infinitely more impressive than I am, a woman named Deborah Archer, who is not only a professor at NYU Law School, but is the president of the American Civil Liberties Union. And so when I sort of think about how I define myself, less Mr. Beery and more Mr. Archer, which is how people, because <laughs> she's more famous than I am, so that's how people think of me. And in terms of how I got here, I very much, my identity is very much wrapped up in being a New Yorker. I was born and raised in East New York, Brooklyn, East New York, Brownsville, on Linden Boulevard, across from Gershwin Junior High and near uh, the Linden and Boulevard houses. And a big part of my identity is as a young man growing up in the community that was certainly a challenging place to grow up, particularly in the 70s, sadly, which is how old I was when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s. A lot of my identity is wrapped up in sort of the challenges of growing up in that community, but being someone who, for a bunch of reasons, namely my parents, just had extraordinary educational opportunities, but educational opportunities that weren't unfortunately the norm for most kids who lived in that community. And in particularly going to Stuyvesant High School, where it was really my first time going to school with kids who weren't from places like East New York and Brownsville and Bed-Stuy and Bushwick. And it was just a very jarring experience in a bunch of ways. But one of the things that it did for me is it really made clear that education is not built for everyone in a place like New York. And we had a school system that was designed for the success of some, but that must have been designed for the failure of others. And that sort of daily reminder, when you sort of do that hour-long subway ride from the three train at Pennsylvania Avenue to Stuyvesant at the time on 15th and 1st, take the three to the L or take the three and walk, that is a jarring daily reminder of the fact that there are really two cities, two systems, two pathways to opportunity. Two other quick things I would say is, well, I think for a lot of people, that experience can be a demoralizing one. And it was for me, I think, for a while. But I was also lucky that I, early in my life, found an opportunity to serve as a college student in an after-school program in the Mission Hill Houses in Roxbury. I am so grateful that a friend from high school who I went to college with asked me to come volunteer with her. 
because of within that experience that I found my spark and my path. The other thing I would say is that it's the other thing about me that you should know is that I'm the son of two immigrants from Panama who lived the immigrant dream of coming to America to create opportunity for themselves and for their children. And they did that for my sisters and I. And my mother, who was a high school teacher, she taught for 37 years at East New York High School on Wall Street showed me not only how hard teachers work, but she showed me that teachers are rock. And I say that because one of the things, you know, when you grow up and you go to high school, I mean, you live in a community where your mom is a high school teacher, and particularly when she's an e a Spanish and ESL teacher, you know, where there are a lot of students for whom her and that relationship is critical to their introduction to the country. You spend a lot of time getting stopped on the street when you're 10 and just trying to go with your mother to the supermarket with people stopping your mother and saying, oh, Mrs. Bury, do you remember me? She'd always tell me after that she had no idea who she was talking to, but she always re responded like she did. And you sort of see the impact that this teacher had on these people's lives. And there are teachers like that in my own life, Miss Virginia at IA383, for whom I could say the same thing, but you sort of see the power of education. Mm -hmm. And because my last name, one of my favorite stories in life, my last name is Bury, obviously. It's not a, it's a unique name. There was one time I was driving down Atlantic Avenue going, drive, this is when I worked at Bush, uh, Groundwork, which is located in East New York. And I was stopped. I ran a red light and I got pulled over and was clearly guilty. And the police officer walks over to the car and he licenses registration. I don't even pretend I, I'm sorry. It's my bad. Whatever it is, I did it. He looks at my ID and I'm driving towards East New York. He's like, where are you going? I said, well, I'm going towards East New York. I work in East New York. And he says, I'm going to let you off with a warning. My favorite teacher in high school had the last name Yuri. And I've got a half dozen stories. So if you had to say who I am and how I got here and why I do this work, probably some combination of all those things. That's beautiful. It is so funny when we see our favorite teachers out of context, especially as a kid, you think the teachers live at school. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to switch tacks a little bit. So you obviously, you know, heading up and founded many of what I would consider to be the institutions here in New York. And I'm just wondering, can you talk about some of your biggest lessons learned, especially as a young leader? Because you were in some very, you know, high profile leadership positions at a fairly young age. Yeah, it's both been, I think, a blessing and a curse to have some of those experiences at a young age. And particularly because of my first work with as a founder or as a co-founder of organizations, I'm entering groundwork. I sort of started my career in many ways without having a boss. And that sounds great if your boss is terrible, but there's something that is you lose by not having that. The coaching, the experience, the guidance that you get from having a great boss, great manager, a great supervisor. And so maybe one, probably the core leadership lesson for me is really sort of grounded in that fact that you said I sort of started my career without having necessarily the person in the next office who was supervising me who I could go to for help. Because I didn't really have those bosses, I had to go find those bosses. I had to be very intentional about going out and recruiting people, asking people to mentor me. You know, often people who had no reason to. I remember a cold calling Lucy Friedman. I don't know if she probably doesn't remember this story, but when she ran Task. Because somebody was like, oh, you should talk to Lucy Friedman. So I, I, know, so I called Lucy Friedman and she took the call and talked to me and has remained a friend and mentor. I won't say how many, many years since. Michael Carrera, who I would go on to work with at the Children's Aid Society, who is the national expert in my mind on youth development and teenage pregnancy prevention, took my call. And once a month, I would go up to his office at the Rhinelander Center, Children's Aid Society Rhinelander Center on like 89th Street. I can't remember what street it is, on near First Avenue. And I would go to his office and he would buy us lunch and I would sit in his office and I would just come with a list of questions. This is happening. What I don't know what to do or how should I handle this? 
And he had no reason, I mean, no reason to do this. And he would just spend that time every month buying me a tuna fish sandwich answering my questions. I've just been very lucky. Well, maybe smart, but I, or just too dumb to know not to, to go out and reach out to people to ask them to provide help like that. But lucky that people did. And basically everybody did. But the funny thing is that no one ever really says no. And that's probably the biggest leadership lesson is not to pretend like you don't know what you're doing, not to go get help if you don't need it. I think the other part of that for me has just been having great partners. And there's no part of my career where the most important thing to me was who was I doing this with? That was certainly true in founding organizations where everything I listed you, I said co-founder, co-founder, because I was doing it with other people. I was a little bit brave, but not brave enough to do any of that on my own. And so knowing who your partners are, knowing that there's somebody else if you're going to be up at three in the morning worried about something, there's somebody else who's up at three in the morning worrying about something. There's always been a critical element of this to me. And the other big lesson for me in my life, I don't know if it's a lesson, but again, a blessing. I sort of started by talking about my wife, who's an inspiration for a bunch of reasons. She's a civil rights lawyer, but who just has always never said no to any sort of crazy cockamamie idea I've had when probably she should have said no, no, you can't do that. It's just so important when you do all of this work and you're not doing it alone, you're doing it your family lived through it all. Your children lived through it all. And I, I don't think I always make the right choices in that regard. I think oftentimes, I don't think, I know that oftentimes those people are getting shortchanged because they're not getting as much as me as they should or deserve. But I guess the lesson in that is it's just important to have great partners, both professional partners and partners in your home life. At least for me, I don't know how I would do it without those things. The funny thing is, Rich, you probably don't remember this, but when I first met you, it was probably at Suleiman's house. And You were sitting on the couch with Rich Berlin, the two riches, and then Iris Chen just plopped down next to you. And I was just like, I can't look at it. It's too much power on one couch. I do remember meeting you at Sue's house, and people still refer to Rich and I as the two riches. The two riches, right. It was a rich sandwich with Iris bread, Iris in the middle. (laughs) But in all seriousness, you've had some very high-profile positions, and I imagine that in many cases you might have been one of the only Black men in the room. And I'm just wondering what your experience as a Black man, how that may have influenced the way that you lead and manage. You know, it's an interesting, that's an interesting, I mean, it's a hard question to answer in some ways because I don't have another context. I've only ever been a black man doing this work. It's hard to sort of parse out the ways in which it affects me or the ways in which it is different. One thing I guess I will say, maybe a few things I would say. One is, I know that part of that for me, part of what I know has been a problem or a challenge for me has been the notion of stereotype threat, sort of the, or imposter syndrome or call it what you will. And particularly acutely, at City Hall, Deputy Mayor. I felt woolly underqualified, and if that's the right word. So many times I'm in a room at City Hall and people are asking questions and I realize the people looking at me <laughs> when in the room people be making decisions. And I know that in my life, I am often challenged by a lack of confidence which I know for me is grounded very much in the internalized world, which regularly finds ways to tell you that you're not qualified to be in the seat you're in, often because there are not too many people who look like you in those seats. So I know that that has been a critical challenge for me. And so that, I said something I've had, part of what I've had to manage and work through and lead through. One of the things that it does do for me in my career, also I felt this very acutely at City Hall in particular, 
because I was the most senior Black official, certainly the most senior man, I mean, if I knew that Carter, the Corporation Council. But there were so many talented people of color. And I will say, I'm particularly thinking right now of men of color in City Hall, who I know were having the same feelings and didn't feel like they had representation. And this is a think, experience that Black leaders in every organization, I imagine, go through. I'm going to describe it as a burden you bear joyfully, but it is a burden of feeling the need to be a mentor and a coach and to be responsive for every Black. I know it that's even when you sort of have this position of obvious power because you have this title and wanting to be there for others and to give them the same kind of encouragement that I was able to get. And again, I called it a joyous burden because it's something that I'm proud to have being the opportunity to do. But it's a burden and it's a responsibility that you feel and it feels very real. And the guilt you feel when you can't be as responsive as you want to be and you can't do the thing this person is asking for. So that's, sort of, I think, one dimension of it. I don't mean to focus on the negative, but it is one dimension of it. I guess the, the flip side of it, and I don't, again, it's hard to say as a Black man, but I know that for me, this is not a job. It is, calling doesn't even necessarily feel the right word sometimes. It, it's sort of all I can do. And I was trained as a lawyer. I never really meant to be a lawyer. I didn't intend to be a lawyer even when I went to law school, but I went up loving law school and, and tried to practice civil rights lawyer. I thought I might be a civil rights lawyer. But for me, the work that I do is very much grounded in that. It's the same work. It's the work of creating a more just and equitable society. It's the work of building a country that lives up to its ideals. It's the work of creating a country that actually is a place where every man, every woman, every child is able to fully participate in the life of the country as a full and equal member. In the same way that voting rights work is driven to do that, I believe this work is driven to do that. And it's not exclusive to me as a Black man, but certainly it means that I view my work within the legacy of civil rights heroes. And to be clear, I don't think, I, I know that I'm not a civil rights, I don't put my life on the line in that way. But I do view myself as part of that movement. And in that way, it's very much grounded for me in my racial identity. So I want to touch on that because I think, especially in over the summer following George Floyd's murder, there's an increased attention and spotlight being placed on racial justice and racial equity. And I guess one thing I'm just wondering about as somebody who leads organization is a black man and what sort of responsibility do you feel to bring the issues of racial justice into the conversation? And also, is it an undue burden? Because at the end of the day, I hear from a lot of leaders of color that they become the de facto bearer of the DEI conversation. Yeah, I mean, the short answer is, yeah, of course it's an undue burden. And it's challenging to be in a leadership position, in part because one of the things that I always feel very intensely in going to work is that for some people, a discussion about race and racism, I don't want to say academic in a dismissive way. It can be an academic exercise. It can be an intellectual exercise, something you care about, but something that you can disassociate yourself from in a certain way. But I can't do that. So if I'm in work and I'm having a conversation about racism, it's deeply personal. I have two teenage boys who look like men, and I'm scared every day. I live in New York. There's no day. The one blessing of the pandemic is that my children are home most of the time. And so one of the burdens, and one reason why it's an unfair burden, is that to come to a workplace where you want to do your work, you want to get your work done, you want to move your work, to then come and to have to sit and talk about racism with people who are 
white and don't share is hard. It's burdensome. It's heavy. For me, it is bucket emptying often, not bucket filling to use this children's book. The challenge though, that a leader, that doesn't change the fact that it's my responsibility as a leader, not because of my race, but because it's a leader, because I have to create a space in an organization where people can have those conversations because without having those conversations, you can't build through. So I guess all I would really say here is that this is my plea always to friends and loved ones who don't share that burden. Racism is not a black people's problem. Racism is a white people's problem. And black people for that reason can't solve the problem. And so until the white person in the room feels the weight the way that I feel it. Our ability to move forward is limited. So yes, it's an undue burden. It's also an unavoidable one. It's no different than the burden than any Black person or Indigenous person or Latino person or Asian or anybody who carries the weight of difference. Transgender person, whoever your difference is defined, I don't think is any fundamental difference. We all carry that weight. We all are called on to advance our communities. So that's what we do. But the call for everyone else is to make sure that we're not doing it alone. Yeah. So just to follow up, one last question before we open it is I think that in leadership journeys, it's often the mistakes that teach us more than the triumphs. And I'm wondering if you could talk us through some of the toughest moments in your career and what that has taught you about yourself or about the world or about your values. Well, I'm having some of the toughest moments of my career right now which is saying something, the decisions related to operating schools in New York, Connecticut, and Rhode Island in 2021 are some of the most difficult decisions I've ever had to face. I guess what I would say is you learn a lot about yourself when you have to make difficult decisions. And often today, it feels like decisions that don't actually have a right answer. I, I joke sometimes that the goal of any conversation is to make the least bad decision, not to make a good decision. But one of the things, I guess what I would really say at heart is, and I'm still learning this, is the importance of giving ourselves grace in a world where we're faced with just at least bad decisions. And I'm trying to sort of find a way to articulate this. I sort of, it's been an ongoing challenge, but the phrase that I'm coming back to more and more is when you don't know if you're making the correct decision, at least try to make the right decision. By which I mean that if you can at least ground your decision-making in a clear set of values and priorities. If you're trying to do the right thing, if you're grounding your decision in the right value, when you at least that you are driven by the right values and you're putting in the work to get the right information, knowing that you're going to get it wrong, but giving yourself grace to know that it's okay if you got it wrong, if you were trying to do it for the right reason, I think is what we all as leaders, we need to get our minds around that because without that grace, it's just too hard. It's too much and it's too hard. What do you think are the values that really drive you? And how do those values manifest in your leadership? Well, I think a few things. So equity, which is grounded in a number of ideas. So, but equity fundamentally in this context, and I want for every child what I want for my own children. And I think that should be done without compromise. I don't think I should have to compromise between a rigorous learning environment, a loving learning environment, a learning environment that offers experiences in art or music. And so much in time in education, education reform, we we act as though we are making choices or limitations. Like you can have one, but you can't have the other when it comes to black and brown children. So at core, it is a vision of equity for children, which is grounded in that idea. That's the one value which very much drives my work. Another is love for the people who do the work. It's hard to get famous doing this work, pretty hard to get rich doing this work, If you're going to do this work, you should at least love your work. Coming to work should be joyous, and you should feel respected and appreciated and supported. And I know that not everybody at Achievement First feels that way. 
and now you're about to get City Hall that way or groundwork. But that as an aspiration, and it's very sharp for me, one of my first jobs out of law school, when I did have a boss, I had a really negative experience with a boss who, story's not important, but basically I felt disrespected. The thing that drove me mostly is, when it's, there are a bunch of reasons why I wanted to be a social entrepreneur, but that was part of it, that moment. It was, I, first of all, I don't want anybody to disrespect me like that, but also I want to create spaces where no one will ever feel that way. And that has been a driving factor for me. So I could go on, but those are two of the core values that I would, Beautiful. would drive my work. All right, I'm going to open it up to questions. So, Sonia, you came in early with a question. What's your question, Sonia? Hey, Sonia. Hi, Rich. It's uh, great seeing you. And my question is really, I would love to have your thoughts and reactions to the announcement of Franza stepping down as New York City Chancellor and how that may not impact the work that you're currently doing at AF. Great question. I honestly haven't had enough time to process it yet. I don't have a really well thought out answer. I think Richard Curran, I don't have a lot of, I mean, I haven't spent a lot of time with him. I've only been with him a few times. I define him to be a genuine, beautiful person. And so I appreciate him deeply as a person. I, I sort of read the news reports of everybody else about the why of his leaving. My, we talk about regrets and mistakes. One of my big personal regrets, again, I didn't supervise the Department of Education when I was in City Hall, but the lack of progress on the question of integration of New York City schools has got to be the biggest shortcoming of the administration. And having spent four years in the position of power in that administration, I feel, and again, it wasn't my job, but I every day sort of ask myself for what I, clearly I could have done more. I could have done something I could have been. And so part of the answer is to the extent that that was, if that's reported, one of the reasons why he stepped down. I mean, that is resonant to me. And it's a shame. It's just a shame that we have not been able to move forward in a city. And this, you know, most liberal of cities is a shame. Moving forward, I think like many of us, we're sort of looking ahead to the next mayoral administration. And so I think whatever change, whether it's for AF or others, the change is mostly about what happens next, right? Which is mostly about the next mayor, less about what was going to happen in the next. I don't think any of us were looking for big movement or change over the next year. You know, for me, the fundamental problem with so much of the dialogue around education in New York is that we just we keep having arguments that are the wrong arguments. We keep having discussions that are the wrong discussions. I know very little parents who care about any discussion about charter schools versus traditional schools. I know very little parents who care about any of this stuff. Parents that want a good school for their kid, they want some choice and optionality about which school to go to, which kind of programming they want, what kind of school culture they want. If they don't like the school that kid goes to, they want to have the choice to go somewhere else. The discussion that adults have have very little to do with what matters to families and children on the ground. I am hopeful that the next mayor will be someone who creates space for the right conversations and is willing to get us past the wrong conversations. A lot to digest there, but a question is coming in from Dion. Thank you for being here and, and hosting this conversation. Rich, I've been following your work as a member or a former member of the Department of Education. So excited to see the transition you've been able to make AF as well. So as we're in Black History and Black Heritage Month, one of the things that we often hear in the Black community is around having to be twice as good. And you mentioned the challenge around stereotype threat. So I'm just curious about how do you navigate that balance of having to or being expected to embody Black excellence in your leadership while also creating space for your own sense of humanity and authenticity? 
Ooh, Dean, that's a deep question for Friday afternoon. <laughs> so I just know I have the voice in my head all the time that tells me I'm constantly waiting to make the mistake that if everybody else realized that I'm a fraud. So that is a constant recording in the back of my head. I know I'm a fraud, but the question is when everybody else is going to figure it out. And I've seen how it's almost stopped me. I almost, and I've told this story before, I almost didn't take the job with Mayor de Blavio. I, in fact, said no to Mayor de Blavio, I think three times, at least twice before taking the job. And there are a bunch of reasons for that, very practical reasons. I was living up in New Rochelle. I was going to have to move to the city and move my family, and it was a pay cut. And it, there are all sorts of very practical reasons why I said no. But a big part of the reason was that I just didn't think I could do what he was asking me to do. I mean, it just seemed crazy on its face. They were going to build what and how long and do what exactly? What, what are you talking about? I didn't know if it was possible, but I certainly knew it wasn't possible for me to do. And, and maybe this goes back to the thing, the long way just to speak to the humanity. I just, I believe, I know in my heart that so many brilliant people, frankly, of every race and color, but I know because of the nature of racism in America, I know for Black people, are saying no to opportunities every day because they don't believe they can do it. And it's a tragedy for them, it's a tragedy for the world because then the world does not get to experience the brilliance of us. Look at all the stuff in this world that would not exist if black people didn't come together and say, look what we are and look what we can be and look what we can do. And so how much of that is lost by putting aside the sort of the deep underinvestment in black communities, how much of that is lost by just people telling themselves that that vein is not for me, that is not for me because that's not what people like me are able to do or permitted to do. So where it comes to humanity for me is I know that voice is there and part of it is just working past the voice. But I think for me, a lot of it is just, you will rarely be in a conversation with me that I don't understand what people are saying and I won't stop and say, I'm sorry, I don't understand what you're talking about. Or can you explain it to me? Part of that's because I've been caught out before acting like I know what I'm talking about and I don't want to get caught out like that. But it's also because I just sort of figured there's probably somebody else in the room who feels the same way, but I'm the CEO or I'm the deputy mayor or I'm the whatever. So what I can do is at least create the space for people to say that it's okay to not understand or to need more. And it goes back to what I was saying before about just sort of having grace, just trying to do our best. And I think it's worked. If I go back in my career and if I sort of look objectively, the team that I've been a part of, the organization I've been a part of, we've done good work. Even when we've made mistakes, even when we didn't go the way we wanted to, even the biggest failures, records of accomplishment and impact that have lasted. And that's important too is to take time to celebrate the wins in a world that is not built for celebrating our wins. So, yeah, I don't know if that's, that's helpful. It's more of a ramble than a coherent answer to your question. No, that's definitely helpful. Thank you for sharing. Thank you. Rich, I can't even tell you how wild it is for me to hear that you have this imposter syndrome because I certainly look at you as one of the icons in the field. And so to imagine that you feel this way about yourself. You're blowing my mind right now. I want to pause there for a second. I appreciate your comment. I mean, I do appreciate it, but it's, it's all the more reason why it's important to say it. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I want people to understand that it's not just you. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> like if we don't say the thing, we think it's us, right? We think I'm like suffering in silence by myself, isolated in this situation. So I appreciate that so much. A question coming in from Felix. Felix. Well, hello, Rich. I don't know if you remember me, but you sat in my office back in the police athletic league days talking about the hey, short center. Of course. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. I've been paying attention to your trajectory. And I always think back to those conversations we had about that short center. 
Remember that center in uh, Linden and Liberty? Yeah, of course, of course. So, don't know whatever happened to that space. Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania Liberty. Pennsylvania, okay, right, 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 okay. So my question is, I almost sort of want to lean in and whisper this question to you, right? Because I'm afraid to even ask it, but are we truly safe as leaders of the nonprofit sector to pursue EDIB in the workplace now? Because I've been fighting this social justice issue my entire life, and it's never felt safe, and I've been punished for it. It was called a, a rabble-rouser, disgruntled employee. You go from a golden boy to not being the right fit. And I'm wondering if this whole thing is going to pass. I'm hoping it isn't. And I'm pursuing opportunities in organizations that are inviting this kind of work, and I'm anxious to get in. I fear that it's still not safe or it may go away. So I wanted to hear your thoughts about that. I think I met that you said EDIB. I think I think I just put in the question. But I don't know. Equity, diversity, inclusion, and belonging, yeah. Proof that I will yeah, ask. EDIB, yeah. I don't know what you're I'm talking about. <laughs> right. Um, the whole equity, diversity, inclusion, yeah, the whole social justice thing, because there has yet to be an institution that I've worked in that they gave it lip service, but they didn't live up to what they, the leadership said. It just hasn't happened yet. Yeah, it's a great question. I guess I have a couple of different ways to answer the question. One is, is at least when you're in a position of authority, I think part of the burden of the authority is to take those risks. That's part of my answer. Which doesn't make it safe, but that's why we get paid the big bucks, right? So that's part of my answer, which is a sucky way. But I do think I don't know another way around it. I think it's part of the answer. And I'm remembering when I first, when I took over the Children's Aid Society, I had a meeting with someone who was leading a much larger organization, leading a foundation who had just recently started. I always remember this when I was talking to him and he was sort of driving, he was sort of thinking about change in, in his organization. He said, I'm going to paraphrase. He said, you have to decide, do you want to do the work or do you want to keep the job? was sort of part yeah. of what the answer was. That's the choice you get. And I do think that is a choice. Now, I don't say that flippantly because I have a mortgage and I have kids who are about to go to college, as you heard. And so I do need to keep the job because I have bills to pay <laughs> and because I do not stand to inherit a great deal of wealth from my hardworking and loving parents. Their inheritance is otherwise. So that's a real thing. I don't know what else the other answer is. I guess the other only way I can think to ask the question is that none of us are safe. I don't feel, I, none of us are safe. I was a deputy mayor of New York City with a badge in my wallet and would still cross the street if I was by myself and there were two police officers on the other side of the street. I mean, that's real. I mean, I just, I didn't feel, so in some ways the question of safeness is, it is absolutely the right question. The answer is a shame. I almost feel, unfortunately, in our America of 2021, that is not, I don't know if that's actually the option for any of us in any context. So it's in that context that I say, if we're going to have these seats and have the opportunity to move the work forward, I think we try to push the envelope for ourselves and institutions as much as we can. And I go back to Grace, too, in the protest this summer. I was not in the middle of Union Square kettled by police. And I often felt guilty. And you, you feel guilty about it. The other constant voice in my head is that I could be doing more. You could be doing more. You're not really putting yourself out there. I've never run for office. I'm not out in the streets. But there's always more you can do. I do think it's okay. I mean, I do think it has to be okay to sort of also be who you are. Because everybody's not going to be Judas and the Black Messiah. Jesus Christ, that movie. <laughs> you know the story and you're still like, Jesus Christ, 21 years old Fred Hampton was, 21 years old. John Lewis was, I think, I forget how old John Lewis was, Buddy Sunday, 22 maybe. We're not all going to be that. <laughs> we don't all have to be that, but we have to be as brave as we can be, I guess is all I can say. That's the way I try to approach it. I just try to, again, be as brave as I can be to move as much as, as I do where I am. 
And it's why I sort of said before that one of my big regrets in City Hall, there are a number of things where I know I could have been a bigger voice and I wasn't. It's because I, in my heart, I know I wasn't as brave as I could have been in that space. So I try not to beat myself about those things. I just try to remember that the next time I have an opportunity to use my voice. Okay, thank you. Rich, I so appreciate your candor, your humility, and your vulnerability with us. It's such a gift. I'm wondering if we have time for one more question. And I quote, in your work, I'm sure you have to manage donors and board members. How do you change a philanthropic culture when some powerful people are not aligned with mission, vision, and values? In particular, when folks are not interested in changing their mindset with respect to equity issues. This is a deep struggle. I don't know that I have figured out how to resolve this. There is no one who has to raise money who has not been in a meeting with a donor where you sit there and you shake your head. But I can't do that really, because it's not about me. The money is not my money. It's institution's money for the benefit of a mission that I care about and people who need it. And so I don't know whose question that was. I do feel actually I need coaching on that question because I've had that experience in the past few months, you can imagine. And I think the way that I manage it often is not the healthy way, probably not the productive way, which is the truth is the way I probably handle it in most cases is to just suck it up, to try to say what I think not to necessarily point out what is often the racism and what's being said to me, which is often more likely the condescension, which is often what I'm sort of experiencing. I can remember very much sitting in a billionaire's office a couple of years ago and the billionaire saying to me, I don't know for this, but black children in places like New York, they don't graduate from high school as the same children do. And what the F are you talking about? Why we're meeting and what I do for a living, right? But version of that, I had somebody tell me the other day that, that this thing called the school to prison pipeline, and was sort of, I mean, I was trying to appreciate, I appreciated that he was aware of it and was, so it's more often for me, condescension than sort of what I would, and I don't think I know the answer yet because what happened is I suck it up and then I get mad later and I have a scotch later and I tell my wife later, can you believe what this person probably using a different word, said to me in this meeting. And that's probably not the healthiest way. And probably going back to the question about bravery may not be the way to exercise bravery in that moment. But there's a power dynamic. And if often if it were personal, if it were just about, might be different, but I'm always very aware I can't, $200,000 grant for my organization, I can't, I'm not here for me. And I just don't know if I can do that in the way that I might want to, as good as it might feel for the five minutes after saying what I would really want to say. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think we all have experience that as fundraisers, these moments of, if it were just me, there would be a different conversation. But if it's about my organization and needing the resources, then there's a sucking up that does happen. Rich, I just want to say thank you so much for your time, your wisdom, and all that you do for the children of New York and Connecticut and all of your service. So thanks so much. Thanks to all of you who've joined. Rich, can folks find you on LinkedIn if they want to connect? Yeah, yeah. You can absolutely find me on LinkedIn. I think it's Richard Beery. I will admit I'm not often on it, but I am there. So find me on Twitter too. And thank you all. This has been great. I appreciate literally some of my favorite people in the world on the screen from different parts of life, from Children's Aid, from Groundwork, from iMentor, funders, partners, colleagues, and friends. It's good to see you all. Thanks so much, everyone. Have a great weekend. Rich, thanks again. Thank you.